Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across my heart and across cyberspace is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rich. It's a spooky day on Halloween Eve, so um, hopefully the news isn't quite as spooky. Uh, We will see. It certainly isn't that spooky for Huawei, and I want to go into our first story here, um, because ARM's legal team ruled that its V8 and V9 chip designs are of UK origin and therefore do not need to be restricted from use from Huawei as a result of U.S. trade sanctions. There's been some speculation about what the impact on Huawei's chip business, you know, they make their own Kirin chips for their chipsets and a whole bunch of other hardware um, and how that would be an impacted. I think the a lot of the, the speculation was in the near term, obviously, they have the designs in-house, even if they're not licensed to use them because of trade restrictions. But down the road, you know, where does that go? Does this now lessen the fears of a hard ecosystem fragmentation as a result of these sanctions, Tom? I'm not talking about an OS level, but on a hardware level in terms of compatibility. Is that now in the past? Yeah, I think this is. This is ARM um, looking at the long game and realizing that these sanctions are liable to not persist much longer. And they are trying to skirt that in. And let's be fair. They're not trying to get cute and like, you know, accidentally lose a container full of arm chips somewhere in Shenzhen. <laughs> this is this is them looking at it going, you know, technically, we don't feel like this is violating these export restrictions. And and honestly, I'm, I'm pretty sure there may be a container truck full of hundred dollar bills that mysteriously <laughs> appears in front of somebody's house as a uh, thank you gift, not a bribe, a thank you gift. Yeah, I but, was going to say, uh, this, legal team cited the precedent of cash v bankruptcy. Exactly, and, and I don't think Arm was in any serious danger of this, but I also think that if if uh, Huawei and other Chinese companies had decided suddenly that Arm wasn't the future, that could have led to problems down the road. So I I think that. As much as this is not really staving off fragmentation, because let's be fair, if somebody comes up with a cheaper chip than ARM in two years, they're all going to flock to it. Mm-hmm. No, this is about playing a longer game than than just, oh, hey, look, we're, we're going to put a bunch of tariffs on these chips. Is that kind of where these trade talks have kind of – how this is kind of broken down, right? I mean, when the when the talk of these first came out, it seemed very hard-edged. It was like, you know, Huawei's just getting cut off from the rest of the world. They're just going to own China, I guess, figure stuff out, and then the rest of the world will get on. It seems like um, companies – big, giant companies being big, giant companies with a lot of resources, they found ways to smooth this out, find the, kind of the path of least resistant and kind of carved out – you know, little avenues to kind of keep business going as they are. I mean, Huawei's earnings were out and, you know, they're still seeing growing revenue. I know, I know that's, this is still a short-term prospect. A lot of the implications of any trade sanctions haven't gone through fully yet or, or are just kind of being still negotiated, I guess. Um, but, uh, it, it, is that seem to be the case for you, Tom? Yeah, just like any good Dungeons and Dragons players, we're trying to skirt by on the most strict interpretation of the rules that we possibly can because it technically means that I can roll a seven here and still win. But really, the, what this means is that they the blanket ban of you know Huawei bad, maybe not so bad, and if they're willing to pay us, maybe they're good. Uh, money, the great salve of any uh, regulatory burn. Uh, coming up next year, Google announced that it will stop indexing content with Flash in late 2019, which 
seems like that's now, including indexing standalone SWF files. While it's no secret that Flash is dying, I mean, we have now Chrome blocking Flash content by default, and Adobe itself is committed, uh, along with a kind of a consortium of companies, is has committed to killing Flash by 2020. Is this the final nail in the coffin to kind of kill this once uh, uh, internet stalwart here, Tom? I don't think there's a coffin anymore. I think it's just a collection of nails that have been glued together. Um, I think back to uh, uh, Austin Powers, the the um, character Mustafa, the one that gets dropped in. He's like, oh, I'm dead. I'm mostly dead. It's gangrenous. Literally, Flash is like a festering pile of gangrene over in the corner. And we still can't put a bullet in its brain to get rid of it because there's so much. Well, but this is a problem with formats. When you think about it, think about all the stuff that lives out there. I mean, I still find videos that are in real player format. (gasps) But yet, you know, that archaic version of whatever that is i mean sure we could probably convert it or something like that but when you think about how big flash was at the height of like i don't know what 2003 2004 which hasn't been that long ago in relativistic terms i mean new grounds i mean those poor guys they're dead (laughs) because that was their entire thing was flash um i i don't think this is the final nail until adobe finally does the thing they need to do and put it out of its misery, that will be the final coffin because you can run underground on the internet for months before people realize that's still a thing. Can you think of another standard or flash was not never a standard, but a technology like this Mm -hmm. where there was like a concerted industry effort to say, this is bad. We don't want to do it anymore. And, and to, to kind of move to that. I mean, I'm thinking of like what SIFs maybe, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> you you just summon the spirit of Stephen Foskett oh, no. to smack you over the back of the head. <laughs> um, no, honestly, but even even in the case of SIFS or SMB version one, it wasn't that it was bad. It was that they came out with something better. Yeah. Uh, even with Real Player, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't that Real Player was bad. It was great for what it needed to do back in the day. It's just that we finally got better at compressing video. No, Flash is absolutely what happens when an entire industry turns on itself and eats its own tail. Because this is horrible and we need to get rid of it. The one thing that stinks in terms of search, though, is I imagine there's a lot of small businesses that just aren't tuned into this, right? I'm thinking of like, like I remember when I got married, admittedly, this was seven years ago now, but like every wedding photographer, entire website was just one giant big flash app that would load up and do a slideshow yeah. and stuff like that. I do wonder if that, you know, if we'll, we'll hear those complaints of these small businesses that, you know, don't have a big impact on the web as a whole, but regionally maybe, or, you know, even very locally have a significant presence or will be impacted materially by this. Yes, should they update? Of course. Um, but I, I do wonder what the knock-on effect will be of that. Hey, I have faith that the Space Jam website is still up after all these years. <laughs> they can transition off onto something else. All right. Uh, speaking of transitioning, the FCC issued a two-part proposal that would forbid ISPs from using funds from the Universal Service Fund that's used for kind of rural internet rollout. Oh, I dropped something. And uh, would uh, so let me let's reset there before I drop my phone there. Uh, the FCC issued a two-part proposal that would forbid large ISPs from using funds from the Universal Service Fund to buy from ZTE and Huawei, as well as mandate that the telcos remove any banned equipment already installed. The FCC would offer reimbursements uh, for these kind of uh, uh, for these replacements, uh, and they're going to be voting on these rules November nineteenth. Uh, so it could be impacted fairly quickly here. 
obviously the big ISPs I don't see. I mean, they have the most equipment, but are probably the least invested in this hardware and have the best ability to replace this. I'm wondering, though, yes, it's it's important to have financial remuneration for smaller ISPs, rural ISPs, uh, and regional ones. But, you know, that's a, that's a big infrastructure ask for a lot of smaller companies, right, Tom? It is. And considering that they're specifically targeting universal service funds, USF, um, they're going after really small ISPs and they're going after um, education. Uh, that's basically where USF is extended. You may have heard of the program called E-Rate. E-Rate draws heavily on universal service fees. Um, this is a very big line in the sand for the federal government. I know that we've talked in the past about, you know, well, FCC says you can't use Huawei anywhere. Um, this is basically outright saying that, you know, we, we will pay you to get rid of their equipment. Now, here's the question. And as my friend Greg Farrow from the Packet Pushers likes to point out, one of the reasons why people are all in love with Huawei has absolutely nothing to do with their quality. And it has everything to do with the fact that they supplement that by just being the cheapest thing out there. So are they going to reimburse the fee that you paid for the Huawei equipment in the first place, or are they going to pay the replacement fee for whatever the equivalent is in a Cisco Juniper Arista box? Because if you bought Huawei in the first place, cause you couldn't afford the other ones and we're just going to give you the money back. You paid for the Huawei device. You still can't buy the Cisco box. Well, and then the other part of that comes in in terms of, you know, the expertise and the knowledge base. You know, you've built your staff up to maintain that Huawei mm -hmm. or ZTE equipment, you know, moving over to a different platform. Yeah, th I mean, conceptually, things will remain the same, but you're dealing with, I mean, at the very least, you're dealing with different dashboards, um, you know, having to reconfigure everything like that. There's a lot of man hours and, and kind of soft skills that you can't just throw money at to immediately replace. So I do wonder what the, what the plan will be to do that or if it's you know um hey you bought you bought this you knew huawei's reputation now you're you're kind of laying in that bed that you made i want to see who's actually going to take them up on this yeah it's one thing to claim that that you you're banned from doing this but with a package of stickers i can fix that real fast <laughs> yeah i do wonder if, if they will be like crawling or pinging traffic to see if they can determine you know, like what the back-end hardware is to to ensure compliance on that. that's another big issue too i'm sure um yeah. Coming up here, Tom, I think we're seeing the close of a major story that we've been following here for months now in the Gestalt IT rundown. The U.S. Defense Department announced uh, the winner of the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Contract, otherwise known as JEDI, and their winner was, drumroll, Microsoft? Uh, yeah, they beat out Amazon, and it'll see Microsoft work with the Pentagon to modernize infrastructure with cloud services. It's estimated the contract could be worth up to $10 billion over the next decade, and we'll get to kind of the overall impact on Microsoft's business uh, on that in terms of some context of how much that money means to them in their cloud business. Should we be surprised that Microsoft, though, knows how to make a compelling government bid? And is this a bigger win for Microsoft or a bigger loss for Amazon, Tom? I think it's a 50-50 thing. Microsoft people were really happy that they got this contract because it kind of basically positions them as the not just the second-place cloud provider, but a contender for first. Um, I would also like to congratulate the U.S. Department of Defense for slapping some sense into Larry Ellison. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, the, what the whole thing about this was is that Larry decided that he didn't like the fact that he got left out of the last round of bidding, so he sued to get the whole thing open back up. So uh, Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, rather than building rockets, you need to go buy Oracle, ship Larry off to his island volcano lair, and just kill the product. Just you know, <laughs> put it out of its misery. You've got enough money to do that. 
Um, and and thank Larry for his service in having this ten billion dollar contract yanked from you. I, a kid, only a little bit. Uh, no, Amazon was basically in the driver's seat to win this, and then the Oracle lawsuit opened it back up, and that is all the gain for Satya Nadella. Um, I think what you're going to see, though, is there are going to be a lot of people asking some very hard questions of Microsoft as to whether or not they can pull this off. And I bet you when the next round of bidding for a contract comes up, Amazon's not going to hold back. They are going to do everything they can to win because they see now they really do have competition. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, there was a whole bunch of behind the scenes kerfuffles, you know, in terms of that work, a lawsuit about conflicts of interest. There's all sorts of hubbub that perhaps there was some executive pressure to uh, maybe not award Amazon. I don't know how much that all plays into this, but just huge, huge news for Microsoft and really just totally came out of left field. I mean, by all accounts, every all the reporting up to this point basically said, uh, Amazon has this in the bag, but technically it's down to two people and we just have to wait for them to assign it. And, uh, yeah, uh, really surprising to see Microsoft come up the winner there. And, uh, we will see, oh, I'd be interested to see over the next maybe year or two of their earnings, uh, how that materially impacts that. And we'll, like I said, um, we have some earnings reports to talk about just in a little bit here. Uh, next up though, Intel filed an antitrust lawsuit in the Northern District of California against the SoftBank-owned Fortress Investment Group. Uh, for some background here, Fortress owns more than 1,000 technology patents, and Intel is claiming that Fortress and companies it owns or controls, which is like all of the SoftBank stuff, filed lawsuits alleging every Intel processor since 2011 infringed on patents obtained from NXP Semiconductor, who is, I guess, largely known in the space for automotive chips and stuff like that, but has a, a long IP catalog as well. In the complaint, mm -hmm. Intel states, Fortress's allegation is intended uh, for anti-competitive purpose to invest in patents that cost lower than the holdup value of those patents, effectively maybe like the FRAND licensing that they could get from it. In a statement, Fortress Managing Director Gordon Runty called the lawsuit meritless. Is this the definition of irony for Intel to get hit with a fistful of patents here, Tom? Uh it's inevitable at this point, really. Um, well, the funny thing is, is that this has been happening to a lot of companies, Microsoft, um, Apple. Uh, and the interesting thing to me is that this was filed in the Northern District of California. Um, those of you who may not know, the most popular place in the world to file these patents for a very long time was the Eastern District of Texas, which is Plano and Marshall. Um, in fact, that's the reason why there's no Apple store in Plano anymore. Uh, Apple moved the Apple store to Frisco so that they could no longer be sued because they have no presence in the district. Um, and then there was a massive ruling from the district court, uh, the circuit courts that said that you have to sue where they're standing. And so now they basically had to go to the Northern District of California, which includes San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and say, hey, guess what? We're going to smack back. And I think that this may actually be something big because companies like SoftBank and other uh, patent right holders, and I'm going to single one of them out, Vernet X, um, they're the reason why FaceTime is a hot garbage dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> they want to assemble these patents and basically get companies to settle. Microsoft is notorious for settling. Um, they do the cost benefit analysis and they realize that it's cheaper to pay these people to go away on a monthly basis than it is to fight them in court. Um, companies like Newegg, on the other hand, not only want to fight them, they will drag them back into the courtroom and refuse to settle just to invalidate patents. Um, I am interested to see if Intel's actually going to stick with this, though, because one thing that I'll tell you about patent lawsuits, uh, as someone who followed the uh, infamous SCO versus Novell Unix Linux patent, it could take the better part of 10 years for this to get settled. 
Um, now, obviously, if it takes 10 years, you want to come out on the winning side. So all you have to do is pay legal fees, because if you have to pay damages plus interest on a 10 year court case, mm, that's not going to be good for you. I do always feel bad for the juries on those cases because, I mean, you want to talk about how do, how do you possibly stay engaged? I mean, that's always the challenge. That, they say that's the, like the biggest challenge with these uh, long-standing yeah. patent cases. How do you get the jury engaged when you're talking about, you know, the fineries of, of chip manufacturing and stuff like that? It's highly technical. And, and like you said, this goes over 10 years. I mean, I'm thinking of the Samsung Apple lawsuits that were going back and forth, you know, for close yeah. to a decade uh, over design. And that's something that at least you can – uh, physically, you, know, you can you can physically see and appreciate, maybe handle. You have like a little bit more of a materiality about it. Um, but uh, if anyone wants uh, some some more insight on this, I remember This American Life did a great look at some of this patent lawsuit <laughs> stuff, where they sent someone to the Eastern District of Texas and these office parks that are just full of empty offices, so that companies can say they have presence in those states to sue and stuff like that. Really mm-hmm. fascinating stuff. And yeah, we'll we'll see if uh, Intel has the stomach to stand up to this. Um, or if this is more of a warning shot uh, for other companies, maybe uh, to, you know, that, that Intel is willing to lawyer up and not necessarily settle automatically. We will see. Uh, up next here, uh, Google uses .new domains to let users create things like Google Docs or calendar entries. They just recently added the calendar ability. You can also do notes. So you type like doc.new and it'll open up a new doc automatically. Google has now opened the domain to others uh, to register. Trademark owners can register a domain until January 14th and others can apply for a .new domain starting December 2nd. Microsoft has registered for a Word.new to start a new uh, uh, Word document. Spotify registered Playlist.new and Podcast.new. I don't know if I want to be able to start a new podcast just from a URL. Seems like maybe we have enough of those already. eBay registered Sell.new and Stripe registered Invoice.new. We've seen a struggle for these new top-level domains to become anything other than a novelty. Is this kind of appification of a of a top-level domain, or, or I guess a making do- top-level domains a function? The only way we're going to get these to catch on beyond .com, .org, you know, .gov, Tom. I'm going to register dumpsterfire.new to describe <laughs> this whole situation because, quite honestly, this was stupid when Google was doing it. <laughs> I have never ever in the history of my life looked at Chrome and said, you know what? I need to open a brand new Google. Well, first of all, I've never looked at Chrome and said, I need to open a brand new Google Docs yeah. Word form because <laughs> Word is on my computer and that's what everybody uses. Um, but then to think, well, do I click on the Word icon? No, I should type doc.new. No, bad idea. <laughs> and opening it-, it up to other people is basically just trying to say, please buy our stuff and make no mistake about it in order to be able to reserve those very juicy things like word.new and excel.new and powerpoint.new microsoft had to pay through the nose to get those i do think it's interesting it's it almost reminds me of like a weird return to almost like a cli kind of situation where instead of doing this easy graphical thing we're gonna come up with this you know this i don't know this hyper productivity like if you if you need to open word docs all create new word docs blank word docs all the time this is your jam the one thing i could see is if they found a way to integrate templates so if you could like create like you know um uh you know wedding uh, invitation dot new yeah, or, something or something like, like that like, where like have i have a very spe- yeah very specific idea that i could work i could pull into a workflow like a like an ios shortcut almost yeah. where i could pop up an ios shortcut type this into the thing because uh, well honestly who would be doing that on ios anyway but <laughs> like this This feels like when all of the really good ideas are taken and you're in a brainstorming session and nobody's paying attention and the guy in the corner comes up with this idea just so he 
he can get out of the meeting. That's where this feels like it came from because this isn't going to take off. This is honestly another example of the whole dot sucks domain where <laughs> they came up with dot sucks and then immediately tried to sell all the brand dot sucks things to the brands brand so that they could, could squat yeah. on them. Yeah. McDonald's dot sucks was only ever offered to McDonald's. And if you wanted to register that yourself as me, like, cause McDonald's sucks, um, it would have been like $50,000 for me to register that. I'm sorry. McDonald's doesn't suck that bad. <laughs> maybe not to you, but to Taco Bell, perhaps. Uh, I do. The only thing I will bring up is maybe we are the olds now, Tom. And, <laughs> and like, this will be like me going up to edit copy you know instead of doing or, or like not opening up an app in finder or something like that i feel like yeah. maybe there's a gener there's a there's a generation of people that are going to school using chromebooks and this actually makes a lot of sense if you're just living in a browser to be able to do you know creation i i i want to start using it just so i don't look like one of the olds but the funny thing is, is that typing things into a command line to open stuff up <laughs> is what old people did. I used Edlin. Come on. May, I, would you have a problem, though, if we get more command line-ish with this way, though? I feel like that's a win net. Uh, uh, we'll see. All right. Uh, we will also see uh, about some public cloud earnings now to kind of finish out the show here. All three public cloud giants posted earnings this week. Let's try to tease out some findings here, Tom. Now, some of them make it easier than others. We'll go in order of uh, of from least opaque to most opaque, I guess is how I will put it. Amazon, <laughs> of course, the easiest, reporting AWS generated $9 billion in revenue, up 35% on the year. Sounds great, but slowing growth for the fourth consecutive quarter, uh, quarter on quarter, that's not year on year. Microsoft's intelligent cloud business, meanwhile, which includes Azure, but also Windows Server, GitHub, other things generated $10.85 billion in revenue. And Microsoft specifically said Azure grew 59% of the year, admittedly down on one quarter from 64% the last quarter, still significantly bigger growth than what we're seeing from Amazon. Meanwhile, little old Alphabet reported Google other revenue, which includes Google Cloud, but also their hardware and a bunch of weird stuff that this call kind of lumped together, generated $6.42 billion in revenue up 40%. So the least and the second lowest growth rate out of the three, whatever. Is this officially now a two-horse race? And given the Jedi contract, is Microsoft closer to first uh, than the cloud narrative would perhaps suggest here, Tom? It's, it's a two-horse race. Um, it's Amazon, Azure, and everybody else. And everybody else is a boutique player at this point. You, if you want to do K8s, you go to Google. If you want to do uh, AI, you go to IBM. If you want to have a moon base, you go to Larry and Oracle. That <laughs> was two this some, time. If you want to do some uh, some on metal, uh, you know, some some uh, bare metal uh, uh, cloud stuff, Oracle is a really interesting solution for that, I will say. Yeah. Now, where it gets really interesting is when you look at these numbers, um, they're slow in growth. Well, first thing Wall Street wants to do is punish companies because they built that growth into their projections, which is why um, Amazon was off by 0.1 billion dollars, so what 100 million dollars, and they got beat up in the stock market for it because they only had 35 percent year-over-year growth. Uh, they were down one quarter. Um, question for all you Wall Street nerds out there: um, What happens when a market gets saturated? Hmm. Growth slows, and that's what's happening. When you look at the fact that everybody was up 35 to 54%. There's growth in there, but not as much growth as you want. It's like saying, well, I'm already doing 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Yeah, but you could be doing 25. 
<laughs> no, I am comfortable with what I'm doing right now. And I promise you, Amazon's still going to be making revenue out of this whole thing. And I, there was a very interesting podcast. If you're a fan of the Packet Pushers, uh, they covered this on their uh, podcast that came out on Monday. And they were talking about the fact that um, there's a very good possibility that AWS may get spun out from Amazon in the near future as an antitrust measure. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But if that happens, if they're no longer subsidizing the build out of the one day delivery stuff, I mean, how much further can they grow? Uh, and that would be a very interesting thing to see happen. I don't think Azure is going to spin out from Microsoft anytime soon. We already played that game with them in the 90s, and they're smart enough to keep some very tall hedges between those two business units. But I think ultimately what you're going to see is cloud growth is going to slow, not because the cloud is becoming not a thing anymore, but because all of the things that we've moved to cloud at this time are the things that can go there. And we're going to have to have a new wave of innovation to cloudify things that can't go there. Or we're going to have to have a tightening or a, sorry, a loosening of regulations for things like, I don't know, medical records and uh, patient data and school children identifying information that really shouldn't be stored in the public cloud without um, assurances that it's not going to leak. And ultimately, when that wave hits, you'll see more cloud growth. Now, what's going to happen in the long term, or I'm sorry, in the short term, is if Amazon and Microsoft think that they're going to start losing out on this revenue, they're going to start doing more and more crazy things to get people to adopt cloud computing. So AI and ML everywhere, um, buying companies to do cloud migrations. We talked about that last week with Microsoft and their mover, movere acquisition. Um, yeah, at this point, I'm almost positive that Jeff Bezos is going to build a damn cloud snowball spaceship <laughs> and he's going to have your data like beamed to orbit and then beamed into a Microsoft, you know, data center somewhere because that's the only way he can continue to ingest data at a rate that will allow Wall Street to reward him enough to go to the moon. Yeah, the, the whole idea of AWS spinning out from Amazon, I mean, one, your Prime membership just goes up to $500. <laughs> Pretty much. It, 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 well, and it also perhaps speaks to the growth of other Amazon business sectors. Obviously, AWS is their huge profit center uh, from them. Uh, and, and like in, in terms of, you know, they're, yeah. they're, but as in terms of overall revenue, it's not the biggest thing, but it is hugely profitable for that company. So that would yeah, be Yeah, it's something. It's something like 14% of their overall gross intake of revenue, mm -hmm. but it's 74% of their profit. So you got to think about that. They are a very tiny fish that is responsible for feeding the rest of the pond. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, kind of to your point of why Microsoft wouldn't do that, I would argue the reason they won the Jedi contract, uh, you know, after that dispute was kind of opened up, was that they could offer all sorts of uh, other incentives on top of just their cloud services because they have that integration. And that is a huge advantage for Microsoft, whereas Amazon is building out every single niche use case you could ever possibly need for your cloud instance, but they still don't have maybe that those legacy hooks that uh, that Microsoft can always offer and always will be able to offer. You know, that legacy has been seen as a detriment uh, to sometimes to growing their business in new directions. But um, when you can tie it into such a such a huge potential future growth market like Azure, um, it definitely becomes a selling point. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Poor little Google Cloud. Oh, I just want to pet it so little. Um, but thank you so much for watching. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week live on Facebook or later on YouTube. So check that out. Like the page. Subscribe. Smash that like button, as the kids say. Uh, and if you don't like it, 
click that thumbs down arrow twice. Ha ha ha. I'm very clever. <laughs> Tom, where would you uh, like people to find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? Well, I write weekly at networkingnerd.net, but also at gestaltit.com. Um, interesting security pieces coming out in the next couple of months. Uh, turns out security is a big thing that people are really interested in. And I've been talking to a lot of great companies. So I think there's some uh, some interesting stuff coming this way. And there may even be an AI or ML article coming out. Ooh, I'm, I am intrigued. I will have to look for that. Uh, you can also find me at gestaltit.com or on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R Anthropology. Like I said, we'll be back next Wednesday. So meet us there. Until then, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day. 